Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Our guest today on the Resilient Surgeon podcast is Rich Devinney, retired Navy SEAL officer and author of the book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. One of the themes for this season's podcast is a topic of self-awareness and how crucial this is for us to understand what makes us tick and what our strengths are so that we can maximize them a process that is an integral part of living a fulfilled life aligned with your talents, natural tendencies, and strengths. On the last podcast episode, we spoke with Brian Little about the role of our personality and our ability to be our best selves. And this week, we continue the rollout on self-awareness with Rich Devinney, and the topic is our attributes. Through his 20-plus years of experience as a Navy SEAL officer and more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan, and through his leadership of the development of a specialized elite team of hand-picked Special Forces operators, Rich began to see that even individuals at the highest level of physical and mental capabilities sometimes lacked the ability to perform in very specific circumstances. Despite having acquired an enormous skill set from their years of training and deployments as special forces operators. This experience led him to realize that the ability to perform in certain circumstances was determined by our attributes and not our skills or skill set. This is perhaps best exemplified by the famous Hell Week of SEAL training, where at best only 25% make it through despite so many of the candidates being accomplished athletes and having trained for years in preparation for Hell Week. The problem with those who quit, they did not have the right attributes to be a Navy SEAL. Rich says that the attributes are like the computer code behind an app on your phone that are wired into our internal circuitry and that they are always running in the background, dictating how we behave and react and perform. Just like tapping on the icon of an app, when an attribute is triggered by external events, it boots up just like the app and it's running in the background, driving how you respond. Rich makes a point that attributes really get booted into action during highly challenging situations, especially ones rife with uncertainty that force you to operate on instinct. Since his retirement from the Navy in early 2017, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant with the Chapman and Company Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek Incorporated. Rich's purpose in life is to accelerate the potential of human beings 
based on his deeply held belief that each of us has unlimited potential that, once unlocked, can lead not only to living the life of one's purpose and dreams, but it also allows for inspirational contribution to others. His uncovering of the attributes is one massive step in that direction. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Well, I'm here today with Commander Rich DeVinney, uh, an ex-Navy SEAL officer and uh, for 21 years and someone who has gone on a total of 13 uh, combat missions and hundreds of other operations as a Navy SEAL. And in addition, he was a commander apparently of a sub-elite force within the Navy SEALs, which is germane to this conversation today about his uh, concept of the attributes. And most importantly for our discussion, he is the author of a phenomenal book called The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. And, and in, in all seriousness, this book really fills in the gaps, in my opinion, of our understanding of human beings. You know, we have personality tests, we have our ways of observing people, but to put it together like this, the ability to understand what somebody's attributes are really answers so many questions. And in particular, I was the program director of the general surgical training program at the University of Minnesota for several years. And in the world of cardiothoracic surgery and surgery, I mean, there were always some individuals who quite just didn't quite have any quote this the right stuff you know mm -hmm. and it was very hard you could kind of pinpoint it like they just couldn't put it together or things like that but very nebulous sort of discussions about why they didn't we couldn't really pinpoint it yeah. and the beauty of your book is that it pinpoints these these things and helps us understand why somebody may not have the right stuff in a given circumstance and so am I, am I framing that up properly, Rich? Yeah, Michael, and it's almost, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and it's almost exactly the, the dilemma we were in when I was doing this very work for the specialized SEAL command that I was at. I was running the, assession, uh, the assessment and selection program for, for them. And at this command, we kind of like your, your surgical assessment, we took some of the best people, some of the best SEALs, brought them to our command, put them through our own selection process and had about a 50% attrition rate. And, you know, in and of itself, attrition is implied in any selection process, so that's fine. But what was not fine is we couldn't articulate why guys weren't making it, um, because it, mm -hmm. it wasn't about that they couldn't shoot. It wasn't about that they couldn't skydive. It wasn't about that they couldn't scuba dive. The skills weren't telling us they could do the skills. They just didn't have that thing that we couldn't pin, that we couldn't put words around. And I was asked quite literally, hey, Rich, put words around it. And so... Uh, so that's when I really began to dig into it and said, okay, what are we in fact looking at? Um, and, and what I found was there's a difference between these skills and these attributes, and these attributes lie on the periphery 
of performance. Uh, they're underneath, mm -hmm. they're hidden. And so, so you almost have to widen your gaze and kind of stop focusing on the thing and start kind of thinking about focusing on, not even focusing on, just noticing the peripheries. And these are, that's where the attributes live. And that's why it's so fascinating to me. Yeah, no, and the, the, just to drive home the context there, you've got a group of Navy SEALs who are now trying to become a part of this subgroup. So these are individuals who've already, quote, proven themselves. That's right. And yet, even at that level, there were elements or attributes that they may have not had or had developed enough to be able to allow them to muster through that process. That's right, for that specific command. And again, that's the yeah. thing, these, these attributes, um, they, they, the, the list required for being a, a Navy SEAL or a Navy SEAL at this specific command is going to look different than the list required to be a surgeon or a teacher. Right. And so right. what we had to do is figure out, okay, what, are that, what does that list look like for this specific command? And then uh, now let's make sure when we're conducting the training that we're conducting, because um, all of our, in that, in that environment, the, the selection was embodied in the training, right? So in other words, we, we were training guys to do aspects of the job and selection was implied in that process. It wasn't like there was mm -hmm. a selection and then a training. It was all kind of one thing. So we said, okay, let's take the current stuff we're doing and say, okay, instead of focusing necessarily on the skills, can he shoot, can he skydive, can he scuba dive, let's focus on the attributes. And if he's failing uh, or not measuring up to what we need, why is it? What, what, what are those unique, what are those, what are the elemental things that that person may be not so much missing, but, but lower on that don't allow them to, to, to do this specific thing we're asking them to do? Right, right. And I think it's, it would be very instructive to talk about Hell Week briefly. And, you know, everybody now with the popularization of the Navy SEAL ethos and all that knows about Hell Week. Yeah. But the story of uh, Drapper, Dapper Kaufman. Draper, yeah, Draper Kaufman. Draper yeah. Kaufman, yeah. I mean, I, I think that really is, that highlights just exactly what you're talking about, if you don't mind telling us about that. Of course, yeah. So in in, uh, in World War II, um, as as we were entering towards the, well, we didn't know then, but we were hoping the latter years, so you're talking about in the, you know, 43, 44, uh, the Allies realized that to win the war on the European front, they would need to conduct a an invasion. They had to get people over the beach onto the, onto the land. Um, and they had been shaken up by the lessons learned in World War One at, at the Gallipoli campaign, where it was a right. massive allied invasion um, that went completely poorly. When, when, the, uh, when the allies came into the Straits, uh, they didn't realize that the Straits were heavily mined and there were gun positions everywhere. Uh, they had not been able to get in there and do reconnaissance. They had not thought of it. So in World War II, they said, we need to actually figure out a way to get some folks over the beach to recon the area to make sure we understand what, uh, what, what mines are there, what obstacles are there, and in, in some cases, blow a path clear so that the invasion, the amphibious invasion could happen. So, so they looked at the Navy and, uh, well, the Navy had this problem. So the Navy looked internal and found this guy, Draper Coffin, who had, uh, who had previously run an EOD school, an explosives ordnance disposal school. So he knew this guy had the explosives techniques and they said, hey, can you put together this unit? But Draper, knew something kind of whether it was whether it was uh consciously or intuitively <laughs> that that not many other people knew and he said you know he's he knew he knew that the job wasn't just going to require explosives expertise the job was going to require men who could swim over the beach you know in heavily guarded territory remain uh undetected uh blow up obstacles in some cases go on to the shore 
and all they'd be carrying was a, a, some explosives and a knife and some fins and be able to adapt and overcome and figure problems out on the fly and, and, and problem solve rapidly. So he designed in, in his training pipeline, he said, uh, I need people who, who, uh, who have what it takes to do the job, not necessarily know how to do the job, know how to do the job as I know how to swim and I know how to blow things up but have what it takes to do the job. Mm -hmm. So he decided he's going to start the training down there in Fort Pierce, Florida with the, with the toughest week that he could possibly imagine. So he brought the trainees down there and he just started this week where they started on a Sunday and they basically went until the following Friday and they got throughout the week, only about two hours sleep. They got, they were put into um, tons of physical activity, uh, you know, uh, combat simulation drills, things like that. I mean, just crushed them. Um, and, uh, and he wanted to see who made it through. And, and the only thing that would cause a man to not make it, um, barring an injury of some sort, was that man's decision to stay or go. There was no, there was no evaluations, no tests, no quizzes. It was all about whether or not that man decided to stay or decided to quit. And, and, and many of them quit, 90% of, of the guys, 90% plus quit. Um, and what he was left with, that final 10%, he knew, okay, these guys have what it takes. They have what it takes to get through some of the most arduous circumstances, whatever that, whatever quote, what it takes is. Um, yeah, have, right. That's, that's the phrase and we've used it so much. We, yeah. yeah, we've yeah. used it so much. You can use it too, the right stuff. Cause I, by the way, that was one of my favorite books growing up, the right stuff. And I love yeah. the movie, the right stuff about the, about the astronaut program. Um, and the right stuff is basically Wolf there was talking about those things you can't, necessarily put your finger on what it right. what, you know what you needs you know what those qualities and so you fast forward to now um so that that original week is, was called hell week uh and hell week still exists in navy seal training navy seal training is now six months long hell week is the fifth week instead of the first week but it is still you still start on a sunday and you finish on a friday and you only get two hours of sleep and um yeah, they, yeah. they crush you and you get about a 90 percent attrition rate um and so this is how seal training works and i know when i was doing this uh doing this work originally, I said to myself, you know, I had, uh, when I started looking at this problem, I had already been on, you know, obviously tons of diplomas. I've been on hundreds of combat missions, thousands of training evolutions. Uh, well, let me start, let me, let me start this way. Uh, in, in SEAL training in BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, you spend hundreds of hours running around with big heavy boats in your head. You spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and running around with those things and then freezing in the surf zone. And by that time, I had done, like I said, hundreds of combat missions, thousands of training evolutions. And I can tell you with certainty, never on one of them did I carry a heavy boat on my head or a 300-pound telephone pole on my right. shoulder on any one of those missions or training evolutions. So, yeah. so what they were doing to us in those moments weren't training us to be Navy SEALs. Uh, they were actually teasing out if we had what it took to be Navy SEALs. What are those attributes? What are those hidden qualities? And then finally, I'll tell you one more story that was... Um, that really you know, sent it home for me. And it, it, it's a story that went, I, from what I, what, what I understand, what was, happened before I went to BUDS. I went to BUDS in the mid-90s. This happened before I went. But uh, when you first got to BUDS, one of the first things you had to do was you had to swim 50 meters, jump in the pool, swim 25 to one end, 25 to the other end. And the story goes that this kid shows up and it's his turn to swim. So he jumps in the pool. But as soon as he jumps in the pool, he sinks right to the bottom. And he starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one side of the pool and then touches the side and then walks across the bottom to the, back to the other side. And he comes up and he's gasping for air, almost drowning. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid looks at the instructor and says, I'm, I'm sorry, instructor. I don't know how to swim. So the instructor looks at him for a second and says, that's okay. We can teach you how to swim, right? Because the instructor yeah. knew that if this kid 
had the gumshoe, had the balls to show up to Navy SEAL training. And yeah. I mean, the most, the, one of the most elite maritime units on the planet and not know how to swim. He had everything he needed inside that we needed inside to teach him any skill we wanted to teach him. We could, oh, teaching him to swim was the easy part, right? We knew, he knew he had what it took, right? So, so this is what we're talking about in these attributes, these hidden qualities that, that drive performance at very elemental levels and especially show up during challenge, uncertainty, and stress. Yeah, and I think, you know, you say those three words rather quickly and you're used to them, but uh, I was struck in the book by how incredibly strong your attributes show up in those circumstances. Yeah. Challenge, uncertainty, and stress. You want to elaborate on that? And, and, and I think it's very important for people to really drill in on the skill versus attribute yeah. issue. Well, if you wouldn't be elaborating on that, yeah, I totally will. And that, that'll help both answer both questions. So, so the difference between skills and attributes—they, they, uh, first of all, they get conflated all the time, but they're not the same. Mm -hmm. Skills are not inherent to our nature. None of us are born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball, or, or in the military case, shoot a gun. Um, skills are things we are taught and learn, and we can teach. Okay, um, here's how and when to throw a ball. Here's how how and when to ride a bike. Uh, well, excuse me. We're taught and we, we, we're taught and we, we can teach those things. Skills also direct behavior in known and specific environments. So here's how and when to throw a ball. Here's how and when to shoot a gun. Here's how and when to drive mm -hmm. a car. And then because they're visible, they're very easy to see. They're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. Um, what skills don't tell us, however, is, what, what, is how we're going to show up in, in uncertainty, challenge, and stress. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. Um, and so this is when we start leaning on our attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are elemental. All of us are born with elements of levels of patience, situational awareness, resilience, adaptability. Now, we can certainly develop these things over time, um, but you see levels of this stuff in very small children. So there's a nature-nurture element to attributes. Attributes don't direct behavior. Attributes inform our behavior. So in other words, attributes tell us how we're going to show up in a situation. Um, my son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. So they informed That's a good behavior. analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And um and then finally um they uh they're hard to see. They're they're hidden in the background. They're so they're hard to see, therefore they're hard to assess, measure, and test. But they are the most visible and visceral during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress because that's when skills take a back seat. Um, when things really go sideways and the environment becomes uncertain. The first thing what someone has to do is start to figure it out. And part of that figuring out process involves attributes. And so that's when they become the most visible. And that's why the laboratory that I had, uh, both in the regular SEAL training buds and also running the training I was running, the specialized command, it, everything about Navy SEAL training is about throwing guys into challenge, uncertainty, and stress. So I had a great laboratory inside of which I could explore this stuff. So it was really mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and you made the comment that I, th I think if I have this right, skills are attractive to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you, could, if you could elaborate on that a little bit, because I'm, I can't tell you how many times I've read, oh, you know, this guy, football player, tremendous athlete, you know, could swim like crazy, get in, gets into seals, taps out, you know, almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, despite having, quote, all these incredible skills and athletic prowess. And, and, and we can be, uh, I guess, enchanted by people's skills. Maybe yeah. that's a good way of putting it. We enchanted totally by them. Yeah, it's a great point to put them because again, they're visible. They're in our face. You can see them. You can see how well mm -hmm. someone throws that football or runs the, how fast someone runs that, that mile or whatever. Um, so those, 
those skills, because they're visible, they're very seductive, especially when we're putting together teams. And this is what this is the what I call in the book the paradox, the, the dream team paradox, right? Where uh, you put together a team based on the best skills, the best person doing this, the best person do that, best person who does this. And what ha what what I found happens inevitably in most of these situations is that that team runs great when things are going great, when things are going as planned. But as soon as the team gets thrown into some uncertainty, some challenge, some stress, the team starts to fall apart and, and, and become toxic because, because you've picked a team, you've put together a team based on the, based on the, the, the best things. And so one of the things I talk about, there's a guy named, well, was a guy, he's deceased now, his name was Russell Akoff. Russell Akoff was a systems analyst and a, and a uh, management and business and leadership uh, theorist. And he used to put together kind of how systems and management uh, kind of kind of um, combined very interesting guy but one of the things he used to say in terms of systems he used to say if i took the best part uh, of every best automobile out there in the world okay so just if you humor me because i'm not a not a car guy but but imagine that the porsche has the best engine the ferrari has the best steering column the volvo has the best suspension the jeep has the best tires whatever that is like the best parts of every best vehicle and put them all together in the center of the room, would you have the best vehicle on the planet? And the answer is no, you wouldn't have a vehicle because the parts wouldn't fit together. Fit so the together. Idea, yeah, the idea is a system, just like a team, is never just the sum of its parts. It's the product of their interaction. So a team mm -hmm. made up mm -hmm. of human beings is the product of their interaction. You have the best people, you have the best everything, but if they don't interact properly, they are going to fall apart, they're going to fail. These attributes are what cause us to interact properly. Um, and the skills, although important, have to take a back seat when you're doing selection and, and assessment and building a team that building a team that needs to deal with uncertainty, right? Again, sports teams can get away with this a lot. You can actually get away with a sports team. And I say this in general terms, you can get away with a lot of sports teams just based on, on skills because this, because the sports environment is very certain. It's known, it's defined. There's nothing that's going to happen on a football field that no one has, that anybody has, has not already seen before. Okay. It's, mm -hmm. and it's the same thing with almost any sport. There are some exceptions in sports, by the way, but but most of the sports is that way. And so you can get away with skills-based selection a lot of times with athletics. Not so when it comes to any other team that has to deal with uncertainty. And I would imagine surgical teams are just like SEAL teams. Sur sure, you have a mission on that surgical table, but you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. That, that human body is a complex system that has different ways. The, the, the human body you're working on today may act and behave and react differently than the human body that you just worked on the day before, which means you have to come into that environment ready for uncertainty, which means the surgeon and the surgical teams are high performing teams that have to be built on mostly on, on attributes. There have to be skills involved. But again, any skill development, any skills mastery is underpinned by attributes anyway. But that's why attributes are so important for teams that way. Uh and as long as you brought up the team thing, what, what I thought was interesting. So now if you if you're selecting attributes to be a Navy SEAL or attributes to be a cardiothoracic surgeon <clears throat> on a, or in a team, would you want people to have basically the same set of attributes? I mean, you know, you think about a team in business, you might want people with different attributes. Yeah. It's, um, come so together the, as a whole. so yeah. there's a nuance here, I think. Yeah, there's absolutely a nuance. And it's a great question. The first thing you have to understand is what does that what set of attributes does that team need? Um, mm -hmm. and, and come up with that list. That's that's some of the work we do in our company. So we go into organizations, we help them figure out what that attribute list looks like for them, because it's a subjective list. That attribute list is going to be maybe it's going to be anywhere between 
you know, three or, you know, say three or five to 15 or 20 things. Okay. But typically you're talking about a list that's about 15 or 20 things. It's quite uh, unlikely and in some cases impossible for one person to be high on all 20 things, right? Which means now you have to build a team that mutually supports each other in their attributes. Um, so, so you have a guy, a guy or a gal who has a certain set of attributes. In other words, they're high on a, on a certain number of those things. And another guy or a guy who's a high on, a, on another set of those things. So they mesh together like a zipper. And so, and so this is how the best teams are built and operate. This is what I mean when you build teams on attributes. You have teams that start to mutually support each other because, and, and, and in some cases, I talk about the attributes in the end of the book, the others I call them, where you have the polarities and either side of the polarity can be positive, right? So the patience right, versus right. impatience, competitiveness versus non-competitiveness. Um, that's why in teams, especially, it's great to have a patient person and an impatient person, right? Because, and my wife and I, so my wife and I consider ourselves a high-performing team. By the way, a team and a high-performing team, any group of one or, or two or more people working together towards a common goal or objective. That's all it is. So yeah, it's a SEAL team. Yeah, it's a surgical team. Yeah, it's an athletic team. But a, a, a high-performing team can be a great marriage. It can be a group of friends on a trip, right? My wife and I consider ourselves a high-performing team. We've been married 22 years. We survived a war together. She's, she stuck with me through an entire career. We have two you know, wonderful kids. Um, she is an inherently impatient person. And I am an inherently patient person. This has worked beautifully for our relationship over the last 22 mm -hmm. years because mm -hmm. in our lives, when patience is required, I step up and I take, take lead. And when impatience is required, she steps up and takes lead, right? And so this is how attributes begin to mutually support each other if you build a team based on the right things. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And it's certainly true in my world. That's similar <laughs> things with my wife. Yeah, huge, huge. How, how we complement each other in that's that right. regard. I would imagine, so again, with the Navy SEAL thing, you would, you would, I guess the number one, you tell me, the number one, you know, thinking about designing a team around these attributes, yeah. perhaps yeah. for the Navy SEALs, number one is, is, now this is not an attribute, it's a basket of attributes, grit, right? Right, right. I would imagine that grit is, I mean, do you see what I'm getting at? Yes. Is there like for the Navy SEALs, this, this is baseline and then we want on top of that people to have different attributes so that we can complement each other. Is that an accurate way of looking at it? It is. The, 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 the way I will describe it that might be a little bit more accurate would be um, to get through Navy SEAL training in the first place. Um, the grit attributes are required. You, you have to have them. Yeah, yeah. No one's, no one's going to get through Navy SEAL training without the grit attributes. Interestingly, however, um, when people ask me to really be quite honest and dive deep, um, Grits, the grit attributes aren't the most important attributes. Um, the most important, the single, if I were to boil down the single most important attribute for a guy to make it through Navy SEAL training is in fact compartmentalization. It's actually the mental acuity stuff. And it's, a, it's a mm -hmm. specifically compartmentalization. The, the ability to compartmentalize actually assists a lot of times in the grit attributes. And so this, I mean, this goes back to what's, what we all know really intuitively which is everything starts in our brain anyway. Um, but, uh, but no one will be able to make it through SEAL training without that ability to compartmentalize. And then that leads to the grit attributes. And so the grit and the mental acuity are, are absolutely necessary. And then as you go and build out your Navy SEAL team, then you find, okay, what other attributes can we now complement each other? Because again, some SEALs are patient, some PCs are impatient, some SEALs are competitive, other SEALs are not competitive. Some SEALs are, are, uh, are, um, disciplined, others aren't, right? So you just, you begin to say, okay, what are those things that we can build in this team that we, we might need to 
to, to, to make the highest performing team possible. And that, that's a, so that becomes now a very intentional and conscious and directed process then. Well, I, I not, it, it's been unconscious genius for, for almost for a while, for, for a long time. Now I would say, in fact, we just, uh, we just heard from the current uh, SEAL commander of, of, of uh, Naval Special Warfare Command. His name is Admiral Wyman Howard. And, and Admiral Howard is someone I've worked for when I was active duty many, many years. He was a, a good friend and a great leader. Um, and he was, in fact, my direct boss when I was doing this attribute work at this particular command. So he understands this attribute uh, assessment process. They have just created a command, a special command focused and dedicated on assessment that's, that's looking for specific attributes um, in a much more fine-tuned, detailed way. So, so, the, so the, uh, the original articulation of this stuff has, been, uh, has allowed the community to get better at it. Uh, ultimately, though, we've been doing good. We've been doing well because because buds as a process, the same process that Draper Kaufman came up with back in the in the mid '40s, still exists today, and that right. process is very very pure. And you get from that process a really great candidate. I think what we have been trying to do, what the community has been trying to do um, in May, in recent years, is how do we refine that even yes. more so that we we actually can can sift out a little bit of the nonsense. That we've been experiencing over the last few years uh, in a in a in a better way, uh, because you know again, and, and you're going to have in any selection process, you're going to have um, uh, some. You're, it's it's just like you're going to have a a top a top ten percent and a bottom ten percent. You know, so um, whatever that relatively is. Um, but the idea is, can we do better at maybe sifting out some of that some of that chaff that we could we could do better as a community without? And so they're working on it now. That's great. That's a huge contribution, Rich. And when you say nonsense or chaff, what, what do you mean exactly by that? Well, you know, again, to be, to be quite candid, I mean, people who join the military, um, for the most part, are good people who want to do, do, uh, do, do good for their country and do the right thing. And those of us who go to combats and are, are, are charged with the awesome, and I say awesome in terms of big, not awesome in the terms of good, but the awesome yeah, right. responsibility of, yeah. of taking life, right? Uh, that is a huge responsibility that has to be, that can't be taken lightly and has to be um, uh, embarked upon uh, with a very, I think, stable sense of self and morality and humanness and humanity and, and humility. Um, and to be quite honest, there are some people who join the military and they're not mentally the right people to be in the military. There are some mm -hmm. sociopaths mm -hmm. in the military, um, mm -hmm. and there are some psychopaths in the military. Um, and so, uh, and so, the idea is: can you identify some of those people if they if they do exist prior to upstream? You know, so we can right. we can we can filter them out before they're put into an environment where they where they do things that they shouldn't be doing. So I think that's yeah, that's, right. the best, that's that's the nicest way to to describe it, I guess. Well, these types of folks exist in all walks of life, don't they? But they certainly do. The, yeah. the, the stakes are high in your in your world, and also in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I, I think it'd be great to look at how you came about, quote, discovering these attributes or developing them within within that special command, or however they happen to evolve, and 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 tell us what you can if you, if about the science behind it or. You know, what are the metrics? How, do, how did you work these up and come to believe in them? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it all started when I was running selection and training for this specified specific command. 
um, specialized command, I should say, and um, and to to be charged with having to articulate why guys weren't making it through, I had to say, okay, performance is more than just what we're seeing. So let's start figuring out what we're not seeing, and let's start let's start defining what these attributes are. So the first thing I did was I got together uh, committees and groups at the command and said, okay, what are the attributes we're looking for uh, in the in the in the operator that we're looking for here? And I got lists put together. I put together lists and got lists from these from these groups, and it came to be. I don't know, 100 plus things. Um, and that where, I, I, I hate to interrupt, but where did you get the language for these, you know, for people to use even? I mean, I, I can I can see myself sitting there thinking, well, attributes, I don't know. They just know, you know. Well, I, I was, I did the best I could at the, at the time. It was new, yeah. new to me as well. And honestly, that 100 plus list of things had a lot of skills in there, right? And so, right. I imagine. so we had to, so we had to look at it and, I, and, and, and so we had to look at it and call out the skills to the best of our ability, but even, and I did the, I, we did the best we could, but even when I dusted off that list before writing the book, I pulled it out again and said, oh, let me take a look at what we had. I still noticed some skills in there that I hadn't noticed before, right? Cause I just, I had refined the definition by the time mm -hmm. I went to write the book. Mm -hmm. But regardless, I think when we when we made the list, which was largely attributes, it began to it began to make sense to all of us. I mean, it wasn't, and I think that was the that was the proving ground when yeah. we began to say, wait a second, this actually makes sense, and we didn't have to change what we were doing. Again, changing any type of seal training, especially selection type seal training, is fairly sacrosanct in the community. Um, guys don't like it because because again it's a crucible, right? And whenever you change a crucible, then someone's like, well, you didn't have to do that. I had to do that, right? So you don't want to right. change the crucible. Right. But uh, this didn't, didn't uh, require us to change the crucible. We said, hey, we can, we can, we can draw this stuff out um, simply by looking differently at what we're already doing. And that, was, that started to, to, to prove itself quite nicely. Um, and then, of course, the conversations that we were able to have with the candidates became much more full, much more rich, much more um, empowering versus disempowering. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so we could have conversations about, hey, this is this. And, and actually, I, I would start the conversation before we'd start a class. I'd, st I'd stand in front of the class of candidates and I'd and it'd be, you know, 50 or 60 dudes. And I'd say, OK, I'm about to show you the secret to making it through this selection. And of course, you see all the notepads come out and I just show the list of attributes. I said, this is what we're looking for. And guys didn't know what to write down. And, and I don't blame them. And I said, listen, there's nothing to write down here. This is what we're looking for. This is what we need. You either have it or you, well, I wouldn't say you don't have it, but you either have enough of what we need enough. or you don't have enough yeah. of what we need. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The process is going to show us that, whether whether or not you do or don't. Um, but that then allowed a discussion on the back end to say to a candidate who might not have made it through, um, hey, listen, you know, you showed us some awesome stuff, some great stuff. You have all this great stuff. When it comes to this list that we need, unfortunately, you're coming in short on this, 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 and this, right? So, so you're not going to be a good candidate here at this particular command, but you know, you're going to do great. You're going to, you're, you'd be awesome for these other commands that you can go back to. And, and so it become much more of a professional development debrief than a you suck debrief, right? Yeah, um, you're out of here. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, that alone began to validate the, the concept quite a bit. Um, and then of course, as I, as I left the Navy and I began talking to organizations and teams and they began asking me about question or questions about high performing teams and dream teams and why teams are failing. I, I, I dusted it off again. I said, wait a second, this is the same stuff's going on. And, and then the same problem exists because people aren't able to put their finger on articulating this. And so, yeah. so now that we've yeah. now as a as a company worked with a bunch of organizations and helped them do this, it's 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 just vetting out even more. These companies are like holy 
you know, holy, you know what? I mean, I, I know now I can see, I can see what we're looking for very quite yeah. plainly. Yeah. I can see what we need. Uh, so it really is quite, quite validating and, and really fun and cool to, cool to be doing. No, it's an incredible contribution. The attributes, uh, it just really clears up so much air about how we are as human beings and yeah. how to put things together. It really is remarkable. So this is born of experience, really. Yes, yes. This is yeah. on the ground experience, working with people, calling people out, all those things. It's really yeah. that that piece. It really is. And, and, and allowing them to call it out on themselves. Again, this is subjective. A lot of this is subjective process. Uh, I, I am fascinated, Michael, with what I call elemental human performance. In other words, mm -hmm. what causes us to do what we do, especially when we're at our most raw? Because we've always heard the saying, it's, you know, the true us, the tr it's the true us that shows up when we're at our most raw. And I was like, okay, who's the, what's the true us then? You know, because I was lucky enough to go through a career and to, and a couple selection processes that that brought me down to my raw my most raw and brought all of my friends down to my, our most raw so so we saw each other at our most raw we saw who we were at our most raw and then and then combat only amplifies that right because that's your most raw but i want to give that gift to other people right and 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 help and help help other people figure out who they are at their most raw and these attributes are one of the equation and um and that's why it's fascinating to me and if people start to think about their attributes and where they fall on the scale right whether they're high on adaptability or low on resilience or whatever they begin to understand their performance at their most raw which is a very very powerful that's the first step to what i call being a master of uncertainty which is really what the navy seals are we are masters of uncertainty so it has nothing to do with shooting or skydiving or, or scuba diving it has to do with we are people who get dropped into very complex, volatile, uncertain, ambiguous situations, and we figure it out. We problem solve. That's all. That's all stem. That all stems from and is born from attributes. This brings up. I've been talking to my children about this because you go through Hell Week, and you say, as you say, even as a SEAL, you know, you're at your most raw. You have challenge, uncertainty, and stress, and you're at your moment of truth in a way. And the same was true for me for surgical training. I mean. We now have the ADR work week, but nevertheless, it's still a very challenging, hard environment. And we get tested and we learn a lot about ourselves in that mm -hmm. process, a great deal. And, I, you know, and I, I've always reflected back and thought, I'm so glad that as a human being, I had the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Because I learned more about myself in that process than I ever did. I don't know that it needed to be as long. And so, you know, what, what would you recommend so i've talked to my daughters and my my children about that you know i i want them to put how can they garner that kind of uh you know rawness yeah. in their own lives when they're not in these kinds of careers you know that demand that sort of yeah thing. well i mean um you know there there's a there is a power to adding the physical aspect to it uh, but not in the athletic sense. Um, again, uh, the athlete doesn't necessarily get the same chance to do this because the athlete's so focused on how they can perform at their best right. um, and, and not, not how they can perform at their worst. Um, there are, I mean, again, you know, well, first of all, I will encourage everybody to say uh, life does this to us. I mean, it's no going to happen one way or another. Happen. Yeah. And honestly, we yeah. can draw from it. We don't necessarily have to throw ourselves into a into a uh, an enhanced experience such as yours or such as mine because the enhanced experience i mean the, the person who's suffering who has to go through chemotherapy 
suffered way right. more than you and I did, um, and and yeah. the, and the, and they could ever even imagine uh, those those poor families down in Texas who are suffering through loss mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. going through way worse than you and I could even imagine, right? So life is going to hand you uh, these uh, these environments, in some cases, these opportunities to explore this type of this type of rawness. Um, and it's very difficult to do it in the moment. Uh, but I would encourage anybody to look back at their lives and ask the question, okay, what are some times that it was just the hardest time of my life up till now? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. how did I how did I show up? Um, and what what did I, what was I good at? What wasn't I good at? And you start to introspect that way. And you start to say, okay, well, what do you, actually, no, I am not that adaptable. Actually, I, it was hard for me to to mm -hmm. go with the flow and roll with it. So that shows I'm a little bit lower on adaptability. That is a data point, right? And and it's it's not a it's not a data point that can that should be judged. It's simply a data point. It's just a data point. Yes. Yeah, to inform yeah. to inform future performance. And so you know, because if you know where your friction points are going to be, that's part of that, that's half the battle. So so you know, again, you know, there's other things, you know, these Spartan races. I know Joe Joe DeSena, who's a friend and I've been on his podcast, <laughs> these Spartan races are pretty now, again, I would say the Spartan races that are like the days long, not the, not the like the shorter ones where you go through obstacles. Because again, those can be practiced. Those can be trained for. I'm talking yeah, about yeah, the ones yeah. he, he yeah. runs that like like two or three days and it's just misery. <laughs> you know, yeah, I love all, one of the, all of misery. That's yeah. right. One of the shows I love, my wife and I have been watching it for years, is Survivor. I love the show of Survivor because I think Survivor is, a, is an experiment in attributes. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. just see it. You see it on TV, you know, at least the edited stuff that they let you see. Um, so again, uh, you could find environments, but I would just say life's going to hand you these things. I mean, 2020 handed to all, to all of us, you know, in spades, COVID. you know, um, yep. so, yep. so how do we show up? And just, I think we just have to, as, as individuals, be a little bit more curious about our own performance and, and develop what I call habits of in, introspection um, and, uh, and ask ourselves once in a while, okay, who am I and how do I perform and be quite honest with ourselves. Cause again, honesty is the only way we can get the true answers. Um, I think that's the way to do it. And you, you talk about performance and you make a big distinction between peak and optimal performance. And of course, the title of your book is, you know, the 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance. Can you uh, elaborate on, on that notion? Uh, oh yeah. Um, I mean, the, the reason why I make the distinction is because peak performance is kind of the thing nowadays. Uh, everybody wants to be peak all the time. I want to peak this, peak that, peak, 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 but peak. Optimized to death. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't even say optimized. They just want to peak, you know, and again, peak. they, yeah, they, yeah. they yeah. use the peak, the word peak, but the peak, the word peak implies an apex. Okay. And, and there's only one place you can go from an apex and that's down. And so, um, so I always said, well, you know, because people say you Navy SEALs, you're the ultimate peak performer. So I was like, no, we're not. We're actually optimal performers. Optimal performance implies, hey, I'm going to do the very best I can in this moment, whatever the best looks like in this moment, right? So sometimes the best in the moment looks like peak and everything's flowy and click, you know, uh, flow states and everything's clicking and going the way it's supposed to go. And it's cool. And it's awesome. And it's beautiful. Um, sometimes the best in the moment is I am just head down nugging it out going step by step because that's all i got and it's dirty and it's ugly and it's gritty and it's painful that is also performing optimally you are doing the best you can in the moment so optimal mm -hmm. performance allows us to play the range it allows us to celebrate those times when we're at peak and celebrate those times when we're not at peak we're just moving this is where the the um the pro or the the div the div one athlete 
that doesn't make it through buds, this is why, okay? Because that athlete is used to performing at peak. That's what their whole uh, existence has been bent on, right? I am going to to design myself. And by the way, it's phenomenal discipline. I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not downing it in any way. They have designed themselves to perform at peak. That's what they know. That's what they're good at. That's what they do. Um, and so for them, they've trained. They understand how to manage themselves so they can peak on. They can peak when they need to peak. So the football right. player peaks. You know, trains for 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 a week so they can peak for three hours on Sunday. Navy SEAL training and real life and surgical uh, 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 evolutions are not like that. We don't we don't know how long. So here's a here's a good example. Another myth I'll bust about the Navy SEALs because you see it on TV and movies. You'll see SEAL teams before they go out on a mission, they'll be like get in a huddle and they'll be like yelling and high fiving like, "Oh y'all, let's do this. We got it. Let's like a, almost like a sports team getting right out to take the field." That's not how it goes, right? We I, I've been in helicopters on the way into combat and the guys around me are sleeping. They're taking a nap. And the reason is because they don't know what's coming. We don't know how long we're going to be out there. We don't know what's going to be required of us. So we are not going to waste an ounce of energy on anything other than what we need to spend it on. We are optimizing our performance in that moment. Right now in a helicopter, there's nothing I can do but just relax and, yes. and, and, and charge my battery. Because I know when I get out there, I need to be at my, I need to do whatever I need. Might not even be peak when I get out there. I just have to, I have to modulate the whole way. So so optimal performance allows us the, to allows us to play the long game, and I think that's why yeah. it's so important. Yeah, beautiful. Um, <clears throat> you you said in the book that one can make uh, an attribute a habit, and it's, or you should strive to make and make an attribute a habit. A habit is that can one do that? I mean, because you you indicate we're wired. You know, these yeah. attributes are really wired within us. And so dovetailing on that is I get the impression that by using certain skills or developing certain skills that they may seem to feed the development of attributes or the strengthening of attributes. Is there any merit to that line of thinking? Yeah, they're, um, they're uh, somewhat skills and attributes can be symbiotic in certain ways. I mean, again, mm -hmm. attributes underpin all skill all skill development, right? In other words, the, the ease with which you are able to develop a skill depends on the attributes you bring to it. However, at the same time, mm -hmm. the the practice of a skill and the and the attempt and the uh, the endeavor of skill development can also help develop attributes um, to to a certain extent. Um, I would say, you know, at the attributes in terms of habits. I think the attributes we're generally high on wherever our levels fall. And again. Everybody, just to kind of level the, the, the bubble here, everyone has all of the attributes. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each, right? So, so if we take adaptability, if level 10 is high and one is low, I'm about a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside my control, I, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it. Okay, someone else might be a level three. Same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them to go with the flow. They're still adaptable because they're a human, right? But, and humans are adaptable, but it's just hard. There's friction there. So in, in terms of the attributes we're already kind of predisposed to be higher up on, those are probably going to feel somewhat habitual. Unfortunately, the ones we need to develop, the ones we're lower on that we need to develop, there's generally going to be friction if we're, if we're developing them. Um, that's, just, that's just the name of the game, right? Because we're, we're trying to create a new, a new pattern. And the problem with, with generating a habit around attribute development in terms of the attributes we're low on 
is it can be contextual too, right? So in other words, right, if, right. if you wanna if you wanna develop your patience, okay, you say, okay, cool, patience for what? Well, I wanna develop my patience for my kids. Okay, well, if you have kids, you can work on developing your patience with your kid. It doesn't mean you're develop patience for other kids, right? Um, it doesn't mean you're gonna develop patience in traffic, okay? So, so really attribute development on a holistic level requires someone to, to hop into different environments of uncertainty and challenge to develop and tease that attribute. You do that enough, you're gonna to start to you're gonna start to you're start to you are start you're going to start to feel like um, that uh, you those attributes are a little bit more natural. You're gonna you're gonna get the processes inside you. Okay, I know in fact how to be more patient because I've done it in all these different contexts. In different contextual arrangements. That's right. right. If you do it right. in, if if you do it in only one context, you'll de you'll develop inoculation and you'll develop a you'll develop a habit of patience in that context, okay? Which is fine. Sometimes that's all you need. I had to develop a habit of courage jumping out of airplanes, you know, because right. I hated heights, right? So I had to jump out of airplanes a bunch. So I got used to jumping out of airplanes. Didn't mean I still like, I was going to go budget jump, jumping, right? Didn't mean I'm going to go, you know, I wasn't scared when I, you know, if I'm, you know, about to repel, right? So so the context matters um, and you can, you can develop any attribute you're low on uh, to develop it across the board, you have to hop contexts and do it do it quite often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, one one thing that came up in the book later in the book is, and this is something I've been very interested in, is is uh, the Big Five personality in the ocean mm -hmm. uh, yeah. score. So the Big Five personality test is I, probably the most statistically validated personality test. Uh, available. And, and I, I, I undertook the exercise of looking at my big five and mapping that out to my entire life and seeing mm -hmm. how it played out. And the correlations were stunning, you know, I mean, yeah. just absolutely stunning in terms of uh, the wiring. But you, you note that, um, that uh, how did you frame it, that the big five, the ocean, uh, you indicated that it was more of a developmental process. Our personality is a developmental process over time and a mixture of, you know, our experiences and all these things. Whereas I tend to view it, you know, the traits as being much like the attributes, mm -hmm. rather, you know, generally fixed, but absolutely, uh, you know, adaptable or movable, you know, yeah. on this, on the, on the needle. And it just as an example, <clears throat> my neuroticism score is extremely low. Yeah. Right? And, and so when I map that out and you look at the verbiage around neuroticism, it states that I get over things very quickly. You know, yeah. I just, I just, it's like water off a duck's back, so many things and it's stunning to people and it's not indifference, but I just, I just move on quickly. Right. And that's been a pattern my entire life. And so what are your thoughts around the big five personality attributes and, and how they may either complement each other or are they really so distinct? Uh, well, I think I think they do complement each other, and I do think the the Big Five is a wonderful personality test. I think for me, I wanted to. I was really interested in again getting out, getting down to to as elemental equations as I can. Um, and I do think, I mean, personalities are things that develop over the course of time, mm -hmm. and into mm -hmm. it, you add values, beliefs, right. environment, um, you know, upbringing, things like that, and that all of that kind of be, and attributes, right? Um, they all kind of blend and stew together and catalyze to develop a personality. And so, and so I think, um, because again, I don't think anybody, and I could be wrong on this, so correct me if I am, but I, my sense is that the, the folks who, who run the big five wouldn't recommend giving those types of 
personality assessments to like kids, right? It's more, hey, you know, right. it's, it's probably a certain age that say, hey, don't worry about giving this to someone before they're whatever. No, age, right, okay? right, um, right. Whereas you can see attributes in small kids. I mean, all of us who are parents know that there are patient kids and there are impatient kids. There are kids who are more resilient. There are kids who are less resilient, right? So, so now again, so there's a, so I think there's a, there's certainly a nurture element to attributes, but there's a nature element to attributes that's really quite real and quite distinct. And that's what I was really interested in. So, so mm -hmm. I think I noted the big five just to, just to say, listen, it's personality is great, but I'm interested in elemental us, right? Because mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. I've seen people at their most raw, at their very most raw. I think you have too. I think doctors do. I think, I think there are people who see other people at their very most raw. Sometimes we've been able to put ourselves at our very most raw. And at our very most raw, a lot of times that personality stuff fades away, and we're we're mm -hmm. we're 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 just operating on our basic fundamental stuff. And in my in my opinion, one of those fundamentals are our attributes. So that's how I'd kind of compare those. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, the perfect story for that is uh, a patient I took care of. He had a metastatic kidney cancer to his lung, and he came in, and I knew him, and I'd operated on him. But he came in because his airway was blocked and he was horribly short of breath. He could hardly breathe. And he's sitting up in the bed. He was admitted during the night. And I went in in the morning and there he is. You can hear the wheeze and he's yeah. struggling to breathe. And he looks at me and he smiles and he asks me how I am, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I mean, here he is on the edge of death, unable yeah. to breathe. And his first words are a smile and, you know, how are you? Yeah. And I, I just was so struck by that. And I thought, I, I want to be like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah that's and him he, in his most but, role. And so, and that's, yeah. that's, you know, that's partially, there's some personality maybe, but again, you know, we've seen people at their most role and um, yeah. these attributes show up, which is interesting to me. Uh, now to wrap this up, if you could kind of go give us the landscape of the attributes, you've, you've got these, and how did you come up with the buckets? I mean, I call yeah. them buckets, if you will. Yeah. You got the five buckets and then you've got the 25 attributes underneath there. And maybe just describe it like narcissism or cunning as a couple of interesting examples. Just kind of describe the buckets and the different attributes in a kind of broad ranged flyover, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So as I, I actually didn't, I, I didn't have the buckets when I started writing the book. I just had the twenty five, and and as I wrote, they began to bin quite nicely into mm -hmm. these buckets. Mm -hmm. And the buckets really describe uh, where these attributes kind of congeal quite nicely. They don't. It's not definitive, right? Because again, these attributes, you know, courage has, there's elements of courage required in drive and leadership and teamability sure, as sure. well. But but the buckets kind of helped. And so the buckets are, are grit. So what are the attributes that make up grit? And grit describes our ability to kind of push through and 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 persevere and, and kind of power through those shorter term endeavors and goal. You know, that's what grit is. It takes, it, it's, it's kind of a combination that allows us to do that. Um, the next one is mental acuity. So what are the attributes that describe how our brain works and processes the world? Um, the next one is drive. What are the attributes to, to describe the driven person? Drive, if grit is the short-term endeavors and goals, drive are the long-term endeavors and goals. So what are those attributes that create the driven person? And then leadership, what are the attributes that make up great leadership? Um, and then what are the attributes that make up great team ability? In other words, your, your ability to, to, to be on a team with others. And so that's how they bend in the buckets. And, um, and there are some counterintuitive ones. I mean, in, in the drive category, yeah, we have narcissism. Um, narcissism, interestingly, you know, I had to think about it. <clears throat> and you have to introspect whenever you do any of your write books. Yeah. Um, but I said to myself, okay, well, um, 
why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? 22 year old, 22 years old. I didn't, I, I kind of grew up wanting to be a Navy pilot, but I, I couldn't shake the fact that I didn't want to be a pilot and wonder if I could be a SEAL. So why was that? Because it was more than just patriotism and serving my country. And ultimately I said, well, because I wanted to see if I could be a badass. I wanted to see mm-hmm. if I could do something that very few mm-hmm. people could do. And I asked and asking my friends the same question. And they, when they answered honestly, it's like, well, yeah, I'm, I wanted to see if I could be a badass. I wanted to see if I could do something that very few people could do. That there's a hint of narcissism in there. And again, narcissism at its elemental level, its definition is the the desire to stand out, be adored, be recognized. That's what it is. Every human being on the planet at some point in their lives wants to stand out, be adored, and recognize. Okay. So every one of us, yes. Every one of us. So narcissism <laughs> is a is a is present in every single person to a small degree. Again, too much narcissism is malignant and very bad, right? But but the but the the appropriate the appropriately metabolized levels of narcissism are the impetus to some of our most audacious goals. Why do I want to be a Navy SEAL? Why do I want to be the best surgeon in the world? Why do I want to be the best salesperson? Why do I want to be? Why do I want to save the most people? Um, right. You know, whatever that is. That's there's hints of recognition and adoration there, right? Um, uh, and that's okay. Uh, it really is. And so I think narcissism became one that I wanted to talk about so that people could recognize their healthy levels of narcissism in the in the context of setting some audacious goals for themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. It's wrong when it gets malignant. And when it gets malignant, you can tell because you look at the people that you surround yourself with. The malignant narcissists surround themselves with people who are yes men, people who only tell them what they want to hear, who are constantly put it, putting them on a pedestal. Um, those groups are transient. In other words, someone can't be a uh, a yes man for too long. So they'll leave the group. As soon as that person leaves the group, that person is enemy number one to that narcissist, right? Uh, because now that person is not bending the knee anymore. So, so to, to appropriately metabolize our narcissism, always make sure you're surrounding yourself with trusted, loving people who tell you the honest truth, who pull mm-hmm. you back when you're getting out over your skis, who don't make you the center of attention all the time. Um, that's how you metabolize it in a healthy way. And you can use healthy levels to set audacious goals. That's great. Well, we're getting close to the end here, Rich. And, you know, this podcast is called The Resilience Surgeon. And the goal of of the work of the Wellness Task Force for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and and the goal of the Resilience Surgeon podcast is to help surgeons be their best self in and out of the operating room. How can the attributes and work with the attributes help with that process on an individual level? Uh, for our for our, for our colleagues, yeah, I would I would I would offer and and invite um, the surgical community as, as, and and really specifically maybe thoracic surgery because again different surgical communities are going to require different attributes to ask themselves what are the attributes required for this particular niche that we're in you know what are the most important ones and once they once you can get that list okay how do I stack up to that. Um, it, you may find, and it's likely if you're in the profession, you'll find that if there's a list of 10, you probably are high on eight of them, but there might be two that you're a little lower on, which means, oh, okay, now I know exactly the two that I want to actually work on developing. All uh, right. And, and, and it takes that whole job of self-development, self-improvement, uh, and, targets. and targets it and makes it much more manageable. Um, I'm always kind of like, okay, high performance. We all want high performance. Okay. But if we're all different types of automobiles, which we are, some of us are SUVs, some of us are Ferraris, some of us are Jeeps. And again, there's no judgment because the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do and the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do. But if we're all different types of vehicles, that means that when you look at all the tools out there 
that tell us this will make you perform better because there are thousands of, of them, right? Yeah, right, right. Not every tool is going to work on every engine, okay? So understanding our own engine will also help us identify what tools are going to work for our engine because if we're a Jeep engine, might not be a good idea to put nitrous oxide packs on the engine, right? Right, so, right, right. So, yeah. so, so I think uh, anybody uh, in any community, but certainly the, the surgical community can say, okay, what does that list look like? What does my engine look like? How do I index that against the list of, of, the, of what's required? Now, what do I need to develop? And then what tools can I use, specific tools that I can use that will work on my engine to help me develop uh, in, this, in this specific niche? And I think that's where people can really have a lot of impact on their own performance. Yeah, that's, that's great because, you know, these days with all the podcasts and information coming at us, I mean, this onslaught of all the things we should be doing to optimize ourselves and mm -hmm. do all this stuff. And, you know, it just becomes almost an, an insurmountable hill. Overwhelming. Yeah, so overwhelming. Overwhelming hill of pressure, you know, that yeah. we can feel around these things. And if you have a, a, a map, so to speak, about how to approach it, I think that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. Well, Rich, it's been a real honor and a delight to have you as a guest on The Resilient Surgeon. And I just want to plug your book hard here because uh, not only is it incredibly insightful, but I mean, it's so well written. It's, it's filled with fabulous stories that just do a beautiful job of highlighting the, the attributes in a way that is so magnificent. Each, each of the attributes opens with a lovely or hard story about some things that really just blew my socks off in, in several cases. Uh, it's, it's also filled with humility and tremendous insight from your years of tremendous experience and obvious thoughtfulness and uh, careful deliberation about these things. And it's, a, it's just a massive contribution to our understanding ourselves as human beings. So I, I, I can't encourage people to read it enough. And I, I thank you for your incredible contribution. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot to me that you say that, and it means a lot that the book resonated that way. I definitely endeavored to write a book that was that was fun, that was informative, but not about Navy SEALs. It was yeah, it's not your typical yeah. Navy SEAL book. <laughs> I wanted I to write. I wanted to say that. That's yeah, right. yeah. I wanted to write a book that was actually about the reader, and I think that's what yeah. people find when they read it. It's like, wait a second, this is fun to read, but this is really about me, and I can. I can actually learn something about myself. So it was fun to do. And I'm, and I'm getting ready to start my second one. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm putting together the outline for that. So, so more Excellent. to follow on that. I'm sure we'll have another discussion about that one. So. Excellent. Well, uh, again, thank you. Thank you so much, Rich. Oh, uh, one other thing I want to say, where can people find you? And then the second thing is tell about the uh, attributes assessment that they can take. Yeah. Well, it kind of answer both questions. If you go to the attributes.com, that's where you can find all of this. We have a an assessment tool on the site. We can figure out your scores on the grit, mental acuity, drive attributes. Um, we're going to be enhancing those assessment tools here over the next few months, so they'll get even better. Um, but you can go there. You can check that out. You can get the book there. You can find me on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter. All the handles are on the website as well. So, and if you want to work with us, you can you can go on the website and fill out a form, and we'll we'll get in touch with you, and we can work together as well. Great. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.